I hope you're not made squeamish by the smell of formaldehyde. Grab your rubber gloves and your mask. Time for anatomy. The anatomy of a masterpiece, that is. Let's take a look at Jeffrey Green's seminar at Woodworking in America. Hi everybody, welcome back to the Renaissance Woodworker. This is episode number 62. We're going to take a closer look at the uh, anatomy of a masterpiece. Seminar put on by Jeffrey Green at the Woodworking in America Design Conference in August in St. Charles, Illinois. This was a really good seminar for me. It was a strong affirmation out of a lot of the things that I've been saying in some of my previous period furniture podcasts and some of the things I've reported on from my visits to the Winterthur Museum. But it was really interesting to have more, well, not so much a different take, but just a, a reinforced take on everything that I believed up till now about the different periods. Jeffrey Green is a furniture maker based out of Newport, Rhode Island. His website is Jeffrey Green, that's uh, G-R-E-E-N-E, -E, another E on the end, jeffreygreennewport.com. And I urge you to go over and check it out because some of his, um, his pieces are, are really beautiful and his attention to detail for the periods is fantastic. He has also written a book that really, I think every woodworker should have it, whether they're interested in period styles or not. And that's uh, titled American Furniture of the 18th Century by Jeffrey Green. The book is out of print, but I am discovering that there are quite a few ways to get it. I picked up my copy at Woodworking in America. I did pay a pretty penny. I paid 75 bucks for it. I did get it signed, though. Um, I am finding now, uh, thank you, Rick, over at Splinter Board for rubbing my nose in the fact that he found some for, I think, $25 online somewhere. Anyway, you should go find this book. It is a phenomenal look into the history of period furniture styles, what was going on in the world at the time, and then taking a closer look at the construction of these styles and techniques for the, that construction. So that aside, one of the things that I really got out of this seminar was the discussion of the Jacobean period or the Baroque or Rococo styles. I looked a lot at, well, a little bit of William and Mary, a lot of Queen Anne, definitely a lot of Chippendale, and definitely a lot of Federal in my trips to the Winterthur Museum and in my conversations with Chuck Bender, but really had not looked much into the late 17th century, and uh, that's what we would call the Jacobean period. A lot of you probably used to, if you've looked at uh, Peter Follensby's site, uh, his carving, that low relief carving and Bible boxes. If you looked at T. Chisel, um, Major League Woodworking, uh, he did a blanket chest project a while back that was made out of white oak and it had that light relief carving. That would be Jacobean style. And, you know, I guess I recognize that that's what it was, but I hadn't really spent much time talking about it. And Jeffrey started out the seminar by saying in order to understand what he calls the golden era of furniture making, the 18th century, we need to understand what happened before and what the inspirations were. So, in the late 17th century, 1690s era, there were really the furniture that was done, the Jacobean stuff, was more of a horizontal format, a lot of frame and panel construction, very low center of mass to the pieces. And the ornaments were applied directly to that. That was those low relief carvings you see. So contrasting surface ornamentation with those carvings. This was really the same style of furniture that had been around since the medieval times and hadn't changed for centuries. So what caused what caused that change? What caused the movement into 
what we know now was the William and Mary period around the 1690s into the 18th century up until about 1725 or so. Well, the British were kind of behind the times. The, the Most of mainland Europe, specifically the French, were kind of driving the style changes. And the French had kind of moved on beyond this Jacobean style into more elegant styles that we would now, you know, call women Mary and some Queen Anne. But when you look at the British, they were hanging around in this older Jacobean style. And a lot of that was because of the um, uh, Charles II was basically banished from England and was sent over to Europe. And at that time, England was run by the Puritans. And the Puritanical reign basically kept any kind of ornamentation. There was no no need to, to talk about furniture, these earthly materialistic things. It was, you know, be very upset and be very ashamed for all that you've sinned, you know. So England was kept very much in the Dark Ages for a long time while the rest of Europe moved ahead. Well, at the, the restoration of Charles II, when he came back over from Europe, he brought with him all of the mainland European styles, specifically the French styles. Also in 1666 was the Great Fire of London, and it basically destroyed everything. So everybody needed new furniture, and since they were building new furniture, why not build it in these new styles that Charles II was bringing back with him in, in the restoration? And when we look at Jacobean furniture, Again, very low to the ground. The pieces were heavy joinery, mortise and tenon, frame and panel. The drawers were nailed together, which meant they were thicker side members. And the drawers often had um, side rails to support them. So again, the sides had to be thicker so you could cut this rabbit into the side that would fit the, the runner for the drawers. It made for a very, very heavy piece. Well, one of the things that the William and Mary period brought into the forefront was a new method of casework and drawer construction, and that was dovetailing. Dovetailing provided very strong joints, but it meant that we could use thinner stock, specifically in drawers. You know, we could use half-inch stock now instead of, you know, seventh-eighths, one-inch thick drawer-side stock for uh, the joinery, and we could have it sit on runners instead of having it uh, run in dados on the side. So that dovetail just allowed you to lighten up the cases and lighten up all those drawers, and it drew the William & Mary style up off the floor, much more of a vertical format. You know, in the Jacobean forms, you couldn't go too high because that was more mass, which meant a really, really ridiculously heavy piece. So when we see a massive change in the late 17th century into the early 18th century, the William and Mary format brought it up off the ground because of all that dovetail construction. And the legs are, are heavily turned, heavily ornate, kind of giving you this, this idea of, of raised mass. There was definitely a huge amount of symmetry brought into the pieces as well. And if you look at a William & Mary piece, you'll see the drawers are perfect mirror images of one another. You'll see a lot of deep carving and a lot of turned profiles, very rich, ornate interesting surfaces in the William and Mary period. And if you look at you know a typical William and Mary high boy, you'll find a lot of veneering, a lot of book matching again to kind of bring that symmetry into um, alignment. You'll also see some symmetry in the vertical plane where there'll be some shaping done on the bottom rail of the, um, the case itself and that shape will be mirrored in the stretcher on the bottom of the, uh, the legs. You often saw a lot of legs on these pieces as well. There'd be, you know, Definitely not four. There would be at least six, sometimes eight legs on these cases. And that was a really very distinct style, but a drastic change from this low frame and panel, dark and heavy period style.
Now, this was the British getting in the William and Mary style. Meanwhile, back over in Europe, as I said, the mainland Europe was a little bit ahead after the Puritan oppression, if you will. And the uh, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fifteenth period was going on. We were seeing a lot of boule marquetry going on in France and a fascination with the styles from the Orient. So uh, Asian Oriental styles were very much in vogue and they were combined with this relaxing of styles from the Baroque to form the Queen Anne period. So Mainland Europe had moved on to the Queen Anne period. We saw some of this chinoiserie going on and very, very graceful curving lines. So then it began to make its way across the English Channel to England, and we saw the Queen Anne period starting somewhere around 1725. And again, we're going for this vertical format. We're staying with this idea, but we moved to very, very graceful, very weightless lines. The shape was the design itself. Not a lot of ornamentation, not a lot of heavy, heavy turnings and, and veneer, but we saw the shaping of the high boys, the shaping of the chairs to be the ornamentation in and of itself. And if you look at, say, a Queen Anne chair, very um, smooth lines, very graceful, very smooth surfaces, and that ornamentation you'll see comes from the scallop along the back of the, the chair or the legs having slipper feet and nice curving feel to them. So very simple, but very elegant at the same time. And in fact, this is where we saw the cabriole leg come into play, which really comes from the Latin capriolus, meaning goat or buck. So you were kind of emulating some nature at that point, but also providing this delicacy of, you know, the thin legs coming down off, off of a deer. So at this point began, because we were going for this delicate weightless thing, we continued to move ahead away from this heavy, heavy design. And Queen Anne began this balance of the solid and the void, a lot of negative space. And again, look at a chair and look at the back splat. And the shaping and the splat is, is more about the negative space it creates than the actual shape of the splat. So again, ornaments in the shape, not in the carving. If you cross the pond over here in the colonies, the, um, the east coast of North America really had become established at this point. Um, we had a little bit of wealth, you know. We hadn't just gotten off the boat, had just established a colony. When you look at areas like Philadelphia and the port of Boston, these were bustling metropolises, and you had an upper class of people that, that had money and wanted to show things off. So this brought about something really interesting. We had new forms developing in the period that kind of illustrated our wealth, illustrated our spare time, and that was the advent of tea tables and card tables. You know, the more you began to look at the societal nature of things and entertaining people, you know, you needed that tea table or having that party, you needed to have that card table. So the Queen Anne period really brought out this brand new form. And you'll see some really, really great examples of Queen Anne lines in those tea and card tables. Now, actually, I think I said something earlier about the Baroque and the Rococo periods, and I didn't mean to lump those two together because they are two very distinct styles. The Baroque period is going on during kind of what we would call our Jacobean furniture styles, really right around the end of the Queen Anne period, at least the end of the Queen Anne period in Europe was the advent of the Rococo period. And the Rococo period brought ornamentation back into the fray. It began for really the first time to move design into an asymmetrical pattern. You started to see uh, in churches and things, in the windows, you started to see asymmetry. Instead of this perfectly symmetrical design, some of the 
Uh, actually, some of the uh, lacanthus leaves really began to surface in this period, and they were non-symmetrical in, in shape. And the carving began to come back in and a lot more ornamentation. And that Rococo period, again, driving us back towards that more decorated surface, really was the kind of segue into Thomas Chippendale. And Thomas Chippendale, again, was a cabinet maker and a designer, and he released his director, his book on design. And this was really his attempt to synthesize both the French Rococo Gothic and then some of this Chinese and Asian influence that was running rampant through Europe. And of course, Thomas Chippendale was in England and he began to move this Rococo and what we now call the Chippendale period into Great Britain. And of course, it made its way across to the colonies at this point. So we're talking Chippendale period is right before the American Revolution, kind of around 1760, running probably shortly after the American Revolution, around 1785. And this was this was an interesting change. Again, set aside the extra ornamentation, it was a move from very graceful designs, delicate graceful designs, to powerful designs. Rich opulent surfaces, heavy mass, a lot of ornamentation. And this is where we begin to see that ball and claw foot come forth. Now, interestingly enough, I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast about Winterthur's. In Chippendale's director, he never once showed a ball and claw foot, but we do associate the ball and claw foot with the Chippendale period. And uh, no question, especially when you look uh, over here in, in America, when you look at guys like John Goddard and John Townsend up in Newport, they definitely used a lot of ball and claw feet. And really, the ball and claw is a symbol for strength, protecting purity. You know, this very powerful, very strong statement of this talon with these knuckles over this shell or this pearl, or again, the circle of the sphere being the perfect kind of pure element. So the chests were made more powerful, being bigger and massive. The Bombay style came out of Boston, which really, you know, those curves out on the sides really gives you this massive, powerful look. The block front chests came into play, and the serpentine chests. Really, very, very strong statement, again, and that's really what the, the Chippendale period all became about. So, you know, Don, your, your best Super Friends narrator voice, meanwhile, back in Europe, I know, I did that on my audio boo at the conference, but I liked Superfriends, what can I say? So back in Europe, we were going through an archaeological excavation of Pompeii, and this began to arouse a fascination of classical styles, taking a closer look at the Greek and Roman interiors that we were uncovering. You know, we had this previous fascination with Asian design, and now suddenly we were looking back at our own roots and our own history at the Greek and Roman interiors. And this was what kind of ushered in the neoclassical period. Very delicate designs, very light and graceful, kind of harkening back to the Queen Anne, but not quite as curvaceous, I guess we would say. And Robert Adams in Britain developed, started to develop the neoclassical style. And, you know, it looks like the forefront of what we would call in, in the States, what we would call the federal period. And in America, we were in the middle of the post-revolutionary war depression. So we kind of missed out on Robert Adams' designs altogether. But it just so happened that George Heppelwhite worked for Adams and produced a lot of actual pieces for him. So Heppelwhite began to produce his own directory, if you will, of engravings and designs based on this neoclassical period. Slightly later on, we started to see um, Thomas Sheridan came out with a whole set of engravings. Um, the one funny thing about Thomas Sheridan that Jeffrey shared with us is he was 
very difficult to focus on things. I believe he had a drinking problem as well. Very diverse in his interests, used a lot of turned elements. And that is one of the big things when you look at a Heppelwhite piece over a Sheridan piece. A lot of times the Heppelwhite piece will have very straight tapered legs where the Sheridan will have turned legs to them. And the Sheridan ones have a lot more a lot more going on in the shape of things, whereas Heppelwhite might be have a lot going on in a veneer and an inlay perspective. But the lines themselves are, are, are quite straightforward. But what was interesting is these design books that first Robert Adams and then Heppelwhite and then Sheridan put out kind of brought uniformity to the style across the region. So previously, when you looked at Chippendale, say you look at a Chippendale side chair, you know, if the side rails were through tenon into the back legs, it was a pretty sure tip off that that chair was made in Philadelphia. You look at a chest, if it had the Bombay flared sides, it was made in Boston. Really was very little doubt about it. Examining ball and claw and seeing how the talons were done or were the talons undercut all the way through, if so, it was made in Newport. Or that one talon was swept back further, it was made in Philadelphia. This was brought about all these regional differences. Well, now that we have these design books that were kind of saying, here is what neoclassical or federal style looks like, they began to be more uniform across regions. So it made it very difficult to define the provenance of that. And really, where we have to go to look at that is on those inlays, because again, these inlays generally were outsourced by the cabinet maker to somebody else who made these bandings and things. And that's really the only way to tell where it came from. So we kind of wrapped up the conversation on that. Um, and just to be clear, um, Jeffrey basically states the federal period runs from about 1785 to 1810. And then after that, we started to get into things like the empire period. And then shortly after that, moving into kind of Victorian revival. So it really was a fascinating seminar. Um, I highly recommend going out and picking up Jeffrey's book. I urge you to visit uh, jeffreygreennewport.com. Uh, he's got examples of his work on there, which really give you a good idea of um, styles and things. And he goes into great detail about the, um, the little details, like how the drawers are made and things like that. Uh, the other thing I will mention is um, Jeffrey had mentioned one or two books that caught my eye. Certainly um, American uh, Federal Furniture by Charles Montgomery was one that he brought up that I've looked at before would be and would be very interested in owning. Another book he brought up was called The Refinement of America, written by Richard Bush. And I think this really starts to talk about kind of the Queen Anne period when I talked about as Americans started to develop an upper class and we started to have more leisure time. This is where the tea table, card table thing came in. Uh, that book talks a lot about that. And then the uh, Queen Anne Furniture by Norm Vandal is another book to take a look at, which will obviously give you a, a good look at Queen Anne Furniture. So there are a great deal of resources out there. The other thing I would tell you to learn more about this is the Society of American Period Furniture Makers, of which I have recently become a member. There is a phenomenal forum on their website that's a members-only area and a huge amount of wealth of knowledge and information coming out of there. Membership dues to become a SAP from member are very, very low. Of course, I can't remember what it is now. I think it was, don't quote me on this, $35, maybe $45 to become a, a member. So I, I urge you to go out and take a look at that as well. A lot of resources for us to, to get into the study of period styles. And I think you'll be just as fascinated as I was to learn about the things going on in the world, the wars, the political movements that helped to shape what this furniture looked like. And the deeper you get into it and the more you start to recognize, you know, this high boy was made in Philadelphia and here's why I can say that it really kind of deepens your understanding of the furniture and it gives you more appreciation when you make it. I'll give you a good example. Working on a chest of drawers right now 
and in laying out the dovetails for all those drawers, I looked at a bunch of different styles and a bunch of different ways to handle the drawer bottoms, and I ended up settling on a Queen Anne style from Philadelphia to lay out my dells, the way I chose to handle the drawer bottoms, but I could have gone with a more Newport style. And it's really very interesting to examine all that and put it into your own designs today. So I hope I didn't bore everybody rambling on and on my uh, passionate soapbox here about period styles. And um, if you have questions, please reach out to me or by all means, contact Jeffrey Green. Great guy, phenomenal guy. I have no question that he will answer your questions because he certainly answered all of mine when I talked to him. Till next time, folks. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.